Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the, and the fear of the Lord. And it shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. The righteousness shall be the girdle of his loin, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf shall also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the kid, and the calf with the young lion, and the fatling together, and a young child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, the young one shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The suckling child shall play at the hole of an asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, and there shall stand for an ensign of the people, and, it shall, and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand upon the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nation and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and together and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversary of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall flee into the shoulders of the, upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and on Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake the his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like, a, like was as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Alright this chapter is a picture of the Messiah and the Messianic reign this is one of the reasons why when Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins, the Jews did not accept him as the, the Messiah because he did not establish the kingdom that this verse is talking of, this chapter is talking about. So we're going to look at this and kind of get a picture of what the millennial kingdom will look like because this is what it's talking about, the millennial kingdom. And there shall come forth out of the rod of, of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this says there's going to be somebody and he's going to be descended from Jesse. Now we know that from Jesse came David. David is the 
second king of Israel. He's the one that God said, this is the man after my heart. He promised David that somebody from his seed would sit on the throne of Israel forever. All right? And we know that when Israel went into captivity in Babylon, they had not had a king since that period of time sitting on the throne. But Jesus is of the seed of Jesse or David, if you want to. And how do we know that? Well, the books in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke both give his genealogy to show us that he is descendant of David. But he is accounted as his stepfather, and that's why in, in Luke it gives you the genealogy through Mary. The two genealogies are different, and that throws people off because one is through Joseph and one is through Mary, which is basically showing that no matter which way you want to go, he's a descendant of David. All right, Whether you look at his stepfather or you look at his mother, he's a descendant of David. And... Matter of fact, through, through Joseph's line, it goes, through, it goes through the secondary line of the king, and through Mary, he goes through the primary line to the king. So, and that's his mother. That's who is actually related to. So, but this is a key. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, there was another very important thing that happened. The genealogical, genealogical records were also destroyed. There is not another person who can prove that they're a descendant of David out there because the records have been destroyed. Now, our DNA probably could establish it as far as we're concerned, but as far as the Jewish rules go, that had to be through genealogy. So Jesus is the last one that truly can claim to be the, the Messiah, the son of David, because of the genealogical records put into the scripture. And we see here he is of the right lineage. And then it says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now Jesus had the spirit of the Lord resting upon him and came down upon him at the, at when he was baptized, remember, when he came out of the water. The voice of the Lord said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came descending upon him and Land, you know, came upon him and, you know, and filled him. And so we see the fulfillment of this as well. Even though he is the son of God, he was still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you know, we see this whole thing and it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. You know, we look at this and the greatest gift that was given to us as Christians has been the Holy Spirit now dwells in us and gives us the power to become like God because he changes who we are. And we've talked about this. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he changes who we are. Okay? Over time, we are changed to be more like God. Even if we do nothing, we become more like God if we're t totally filled. And then we add reading the Bible and being taught in a, by a good teacher and all these other things, and we can get really changed quickly. And here we see the Holy Spirit dwelt upon Jesus. And then it says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now we've covered this. The, the word for, the, the definition for wisdom is applied knowledge. It's one thing. Have you ever met somebody who's really smart and they're dumber than bricks when it comes to any, any applying of their knowledge? 
They, they have no common sense. Uh, they, know, you know, they seem to know everything, but they don't get anything right ever. Wisdom, applying what we know. I would rather be dealing with somebody who has great wisdom and applies what little they know than meeting somebody who knows lots of stuff and doesn't apply any of it. And <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's true. There's a lot of people who know just enough stuff to mess things up, or you know, uh, people who know just enough about car mechanics to mess it all up every time they touch it, uh, just enough about plumbing to really make a mess out of the thing when they get done with it. You know, and, uh, but it says the spirit of wisdom, and not only wisdom but understanding. This is one of the great gifts that we have of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been, can you remember back when before you were saved and you would read the Bible and nothing made any sense to you? Then you get saved and all of a sudden, you know, might be just the next day. The day before you read the Bible, nothing made sense. You get saved and you start reading and go, oh, it's starting to make sense. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do to, to show us the word. But this is true. You hear this testimony over and over. I tried to read the Bible. It didn't make any sense of it. Get saved. Wow, it's all of a sudden. Look at this. It's awesome. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing when the Holy Spirit starts showing us what the meanings are. See, I thought it was boring, but not anymore. <laughs> very exciting. It's very exciting. And, and then, you know, we read it, and, you know, I've heard, I've heard so many people say, well, how can you believe that old, out-of-date book? And I'm going, have you even read the book? It's yeah. now. Have you read the Bible? Do you really know what you're even saying? And then you quote something out of them and say, let me read this to you. And you read this to them and go, well, it sounds like you're reading the newspaper. I'm going, this is the Bible. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, and everything is right there telling us what to do. And, you know, I love it. And the Spirit is what gives us this wisdom and this understanding. And then he says, you know, he's going to give you the spirit of counsel and might. You know, good counsel is important. And I've shared this with you. When you go to seek counsel, make sure you find somebody who's going to give you counsel that comes from the Word of God. Because how many times do we look at uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Too often we lean on our own understanding. And if we're not careful, we go to get counsel from people who are leaning on their own understanding. And this might be as simple as, you know, well, I'm having trouble with my spouse, you know, and we're always fighting and we're never getting along. And the human, the human understanding says, well, just break up, leave. You know, it's, you know, it's not worth going through all those headaches. And God says, endure, love them, you know, and things work out. And, you know, one thing I've learned over, you know, th three and a half decades of marriage is there's times when I'm really in love with my wife and times when I'm looking at my wife and saying, who is this person? Okay, and everybody I've talked to who's been married any length of time says the same thing. There's those times when you have all the feelings and the emotions of love and then there's times like, who's this living in my house and why are they here? You know, and that's not the time to make a decision. I tell people all the time, do not make a decision when you're in a bad place. When you're mad at the world, is not the time to try to make a decision on what to do with your future. You're almost guaranteed to make a bad decision when you're in a bad place. And because your usual decision will be, let me run away from all these problems. I'll start all over. And that's not what God wants. 
Now, if you still want to move away and, and change and, and start all over, and you're in a good place, then it might be God talking to you at that point. But don't make decisions when you're in a bad place. Get good, godly decision, uh, counsel, and then just start praying about it. And if you still feel like th it was the right way when you're in a good place, then maybe it's God saying it. But my personal decision is I'm not going to make any decisions when the whole world seems to be against me and I'm, and I'm feeling miserable. I know I've learned the hard way. That is not the time to make a life-changing decision. <laughs> That's the time to just stay the course and say, God, I'm going to stay here. Unless you give me an audible voice that says, go someplace else, and better, then I better know it's God if that even happens. You know, so he says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Do you realize that God gives us the strength to do anything he calls us to do? No matter what, how crazy it might seem. I think about this sometimes, and I've been praying a lot. God, what do you want our church to be doing for the kingdom? And I'm looking for him to tell me something that is kind of scary, hopefully. Because if it's something that's real easy to do, it's probably not from God. God gives us God-size visions and calls because it needs to be him. And who knows what that calls and vision is going to be? I don't know yet. I think you're doing really good for the church because you're spreading the whole world. Well, yeah, but there's, we've come a long ways, but, I, the, but you can't stay in one small part of the vision for, forever. There's always got to be something to the next step that God is saying, this is what you're doing. And I think of somebody like George Mueller. He starts out just by changing the way the church takes up a collection to support him. Then he starts giving away everything to support, you know, missions. And then he, and then he starts helping just a handful of of orphans, and then the next thing you know, he's doing tens of thousands of orphans. You know, now, I think if God had told him, okay, George, we're going to give you, a mission, you know, an orphanage, and you're going to do 10,000 orphans in, in a month, you know, he'd probably have said, no, thank you, I'm going to go do something else. This is the way God works, though. He starts us out small, and then starts adding to the vision, and adding to the vision, and making it bigger, because he needs it to be God-sized. And when you start out, any vision is, is pretty much God-sized because you don't have anything. And then you learn to be faithful in that, and he says, okay, let's make it bigger. Let's make it bigger. Where is God going to take us? I don't know. I'm looking forward to where he's going to take us. And you're right, we're doing a lot right now. We're reaching the world through the, through the Internet. We're reaching the world. You know, we're doing our parade things. But what's the next step? And pray with me because I want God to be able to show us what is the next step. You know, what is the next thing that he's going to give us strength to do that looks totally impossible? Revival. Well, <laughs> well, that's a possibility. He usually says step forward, and he provides the money you need to spend. He doesn't usually give the money first. The call first, you step out in the call, and the money comes when you step out in faith. Like when you're in praying for breakfast. Right, when there's no breakfast there. So, and then the last part of this is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge. The Holy Spirit will give us knowledge. Have you ever been in a place where you just know what you need to do even though you don't really know why? I've had many times when somebody's come up and said, I want this or I want that from the church, and there's just this little thing that says, no. I don't know why. It doesn't even sound like a bad deal necessarily. And I say no, and then they get all upset, you know, and and start telling me what they really wanted to do, and I'm going, I'm glad I said no. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm thank, thankful that you told me to tell this person no. Uh, you know, and then the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is our way to God. You know, and we need to learn to be able to fear him. And that's not to be afraid of God necessarily, but it, the fear of the discipline for being disobedient and the fear of bringing displeasure to him. Not that we're looking at saying, well, my, if I don't do this right, I'm not going to go. No, it's not that. It's the idea of, God, I just want to do what's right. I want to see that smile on your face type deal. You know, it's the child that says, I just want to see the smile on my mom or dad's face you know, by being obedient. Now, not every child does that. We have some children that are totally disobedient, and they're not, gonna, they're not looking to see the smile on their parents' face for anything. They don't care. But there's others that just, I would just like to see that smile. I hope to see the smile on God's face. The thing I want to hear so much when I get to heaven is, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to finish well because I have looked at so many people that I've known that started out well and have fallen by the wayside over time. And I don't want to be one of those that fall, fall away. And, you know, and I do not want to hear God say, well, okay, by my grace, you're, you're in, and you don't get any rewards because of your, your walk didn't, didn't walk you know, and didn't earn anything. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is what Jesus, and you know, we look at these, and we look at this list, and you start looking about Jesus, and Jesus, because he knew their thoughts, Jesus, be, knowing, their, knowing their, their intentions, he knew the knowledge. And it's really amazing when the Spirit communicates with us and talks to us, gives us the word. I love sometimes when I'm, when I'm teaching or preaching and, and the Spirit takes over, when I'm witnessing to somebody and the Spirit takes over, and all of a sudden you, you know, I don't know if you've ever been there when you're talking to somebody about God, and all of a sudden it's like you're just listening to your voice talking. Yeah. You know, it's like, Wow. This, this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not this good. I don't know these things. I'm not this eloquent. And you're just listening to yourself as the Holy Spirit is using your voice. You're witnessing to people. And you're talking to people. And it's an amazing thing sometimes the way God can take over the person who's just willing to open their mouth. And I've had this happen many times, especially when witnessing, where God just takes over. And you're kind of just kicked back and going, this is interesting. My voice, my words, kind of, but it's not me. And it's wonderful when that happens. And I hope you've all experienced it at some time. If not, pray that God opens it up, open your mouth, and let him use you. Because it's a lot of fun just to let God use you. Verse 3. All right, it says the Spirit of the Lord, and it says in verse 3, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. He shall be of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. This is so important. This is what we were talking about, knowing God, fearing God. You know, the closer you are to God, the less likely you are to be taken in by somebody trying to deceive you. Because the Holy Spirit protects you. He guides you. may not understand it. There may just be that little check. God, I don't quite know why, but I just don't feel comfortable with this. And that's an important thing sometimes. There's this idea of why. Why don't I trust this person? 
Why don't I trust this situation? Why, you know, I just, it sounds like such a good idea, I just don't know. And then you find out later on why you shouldn't do it, hopefully, you know, or you say no and you may or may not find out until heaven. But being of quick understanding, and I love this, he shall not judge after his sight of his eyes nor reprove after the hearing of his ears. How many times have we made a decision on what we think we see? Or what we, where we listen to the wrong people? This, that one is probably the one that gets us the most. We do have a problem with what we see. Okay, we oftentimes judge wrong by what we, what we think we see. And that includes our own, our own life. God, you know, what did I do to deserve all this trouble? And God says nothing. Yeah. If you can't figure out what you, what you did to deserve that, you're probably not deserving it as a test. Job was, was being shown, you know, you know, it's a test for you, Job. And his friends were all saying, Job, you did something really awful because bad things don't happen to good people. And that's what they kept saying over and over again. And we know that God's testimony of Job was he's a good and upright, perfect man who hates evil. God's testimony of Job was good. Job's friends kept telling him, you're awful. You must be really awful to have had all this bad stuff happening to you. They judged by what they thought they saw. And we need to be careful about this because it is real easy to judge by what we think we see. And you know what? Even if we're correcting what we think we see, we don't know what's going to happen down the road, so we're still not seeing correctly so often. We need to be very careful about what. But even more important, what we hear how many times do we listen to gossip? How many times do we listen to somebody say something? And you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is most of the time when somebody tells you the story about what, even if they are directly involved in what happened, they tell it in such a way that makes them look much better than they were in the, in the situation and the other person much worse than they were in the situation. I've done a lot of counseling. I've done a lot of problem solving and trying to bring two, two parties together on things. And it is amazing when you listen to both sides of a story. You listen to one side and you're ready to kill the person that, that they're talking about. Then you listen to their side and it's like, now you're ready to kill the other person. It's like, you know, okay, somewhere in the middle here is the actual truth. And you, and you have to listen to what did they both say that matches. And then try to figure out what's going on. And usually one person's a little more truthful about the situation than the other, depending on how bad, how bad it is. But we need to be careful about what we hear. What do we listen to? And one of my favorite things is somebody wants to tell me about somebody, and I'll do it frequently. Okay, well, let's go ahead and let's get them here, and you can tell me all you want as long as they're here. Okay, you can say whatever you want if they're here to defend themselves and, 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 and stay, say something. But if they're not here and you, you know, most of the time, people have never, I want to say, I don't think anybody's ever taken me up on the option, opportunity to go talk about somebody in front of them. I can't think of a single person who's done that, which just tells me that something was wrong in the first place with what they wanted to tell me. But I'm going to stretch this even further. How many times do we listen to the lies of Satan about us? Oh, you're so miserable. God will never forgive you for what you've done. Man, you, you know, if the church knew that you were like this, you would have no friends at that church. Nobody would love you if they really know who you were. Satan loves to lie to us and compound our problems and make it say, you know, and this other big thing is, well, you're the only one that's ever had this problem or had this thought. You must really be awful 
Nobody ever thinks like that. And the really interesting thing is when you start giving your testimony, after you've come to the, you've worked through it, you, you get walked back to God, and you start giving your testimony, you'll have all kinds of people going, I'm so glad you said that. I've had that same problem. You know, and we've talked about this. Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Second Corinthians, uh, First Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Okay, when Satan comes to you and says, you're the only one, he's lying to you. <laughs> Learn to say, you're a liar. I may not feel good about this, but you are a liar and I'm not going to accept this. And then ask for forgiveness. God puts it under the blood and go forward. Yeah. There is nothing that you can do that God's going to reject you. you know, Paul said, what can separate you from the love of Christ? And he goes through height, depth, width. <laughs> okay. uh, principalities, you know, the spiritual, the, 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 the hell. He goes, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you're his child, nothing is going to separate you from his love. Matter of fact, even if you're not his child, nothing is going to separate you from his love. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven, but he still loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved us before we were his children. He loved us while we were his enemies. Nothing will separate mankind from his love. Now, when you stand before God at the judgment seat, it's going to be a simple question. What did you do with Jesus? And if you've rejected Jesus, you are headed to hell. If you've accepted Jesus, you're in heaven because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Otherwise, you're clothed in your own righteousness. All of this is nothing separates us from God's love. Now, if we don't accept Jesus, we're not in fellowship with him. We're not filled with the spirit. We're not get, getting any of the blessings. We have a great big empty hole in our heart, in our spirit. Once we have him, he fills that spot. And there's joy, joy that, and peace that passes understanding. Have you ever felt that peacefulness when everything is going wrong and still there's that peacefulness in your heart that God's in control? I love that feeling. God, don't understand any of this, but you are in control and I'm at peace. Uh, to, today it was so funny because I was helping out with this activity at the prison and the man in charge of it was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> things were just not going right and he was just you know freaking out and it's like it's not a big deal everything's going to work out matter of fact you still have an hour and a half to get everything organized and, you know and he should have the peace he's a Christian and he should have that peace that everything was going to work out and yet he's you know here there everywhere and and, and just stressed out. And, you know, I'm thinking, relax. <laughs> relax. God is in control. It's going to work out. And, you know, it's so wonderful when you can just have that peace. God, don't understand what's going on. Doesn't make any sense, but I know you're in control. And I love that. God, you're sovereign. Nothing happens to anybody in this world that God does not allow. Nothing. Okay? Why, do I, why can I say that? I've said this before. If Satan could do what he wanted to, to the lost person, they would be dead. 
Because that would be his surefire way to know that they were going to hell. He would kill them. God puts limits on Satan, even with the lost. Okay? Now, those limits are not near as limiting as they are with his children, but he still says, you can't do whatever you want to this person. There's a limit. Otherwise, he'd, like I say, he'd kill everybody because that's a surefire way. You know, if you kill the person before they come to Christ, then you guarantee they'd go to hell. And I think he would do that. He'd kill everybody. They're born, get them, in, get, get them dead so they'll, they'll be you know, not going to heaven. Let's, you know, they've they've got, committed their sin. <laughs> or kill them now. We know, we know they're going to hell. Or, so he has a limit. God is sovereign. Keep that in mind. He is the sovereign of this world and Satan is on a leash. Now, for some people, his leash is a little longer than others. For Christians, it's a really short leash. But even then, sometimes he says, okay, Satan, I'm going to lengthen your leash, just as he did with Job. Job, uh, you're a really good man, but I want to teach you some lessons. <laughs> I want to teach you a lesson about prosperity gospel, and I'm going to let you have, go through some hard time. God sometimes will do that. But we look at this. And be careful about what we listen to from others, from Satan, and even from ourselves. How many times do we condemn ourselves? We don't even need Satan to condemn us at many times. I've heard so many people say, well, I can forgive others, but I cannot forgive myself. And I really have a problem with that statement. You're telling me that God can forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself? That, you know, that has a pretty big arrogancy in my, in my, in my thought process. You, you expect God to forgive you, but you won't forgive yourself? You expect, and the other one is, you expect God to take care of your future, but you won't trust God in this life? What faith do you have? I, that's kind of hard for me to believe, that you have faith that he's going to take care of you for eternity, but you don't have faith that he'll take care of you in this lifetime. But again, I'm just saying, be careful what we hear no matter who's saying it to you whether it's you the devil or others be careful what you hear and listen to and be very careful what you think you see because we've talked about this you know this life we're looking at the tapestry that God's creating from the wrong side and it looks like a mess and we're going God I just don't understand what's what's that messy knot up there the, you know that's my life up there God that's a big messy knot and God says just wait till you see it from the other side Wait till you see it from heaven. Okay, God, if you say so. We need to be careful about what we think we see and what we think we hear. Because make sure it's the spirit guiding our thoughts, guiding our, guiding our vision. Because otherwise, we're going to make very bad decisions. Verse 4. But with uprightness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth, and the breadth of his lips shall he slay the wicked. With righteousness, God judges the poor and reproves with equity the meek of the earth. God's judgment for the poor is right. He is the only one that can be truly right. He's not going to be fooled. No lawyer's tricks, no... No stacking the witness stand, no, no getting expert witnesses that can, will lie on the stay, stay uh, on the, in the, in, on the stand, no, no buying witnesses. God will know and judge correctly 
But I also like this, he will reprove with equity. When God disciplines, he does it with the right measure. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I've seen people who have been really crushed by God because of their sin, which just means that they're not willing to repent. You know, we talked about this. Moses did not get to go into the promised land. Why did he not to go, get to go into the promised land? Well, the primary reason is that when God told him to speak to the rock the second time, he struck the rock. And God told him because he struck the rock, which ruined the picture of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, because he struck the rock the first time and he was only supposed to speak to it, which is calling forth the Holy Spirit. And so he says, you're not going into the promised land. From that point on, you read in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has a refrain that he keeps saying over and over. It's your guys' fault that I'm not going into the promised land. Okay, why? They made him mad and he struck the rock. I really think, though, it was his lack of repentance that kept him out of the promised land. God knew that he would not repent of his anger and kept him out. Now, it also has the picture of Moses represented the law and the law does not go into the promise. You know, there's a lot of pictures behind what happened. But it was his lack of repentance that really kept him out of the promised land. And he continually, from that point on, blamed the people. He had a bitterness toward his own people. Before that, he was always saying, you know, God says, I'm going to destroy them and start all over with you. And, and Moses goes, no, you can't do that. That'll ruin your testimony. But the day he struck that rock and God says, you're not going in the promised land, he had a bitterness toward the people from that point on. It's your guys' fault. You know, we want to be careful about that. We cannot blame others for the discipline that comes our way. We look at what happened to the Korites. They came in, in rebellion against, Abraham, against Moses and Aaron. And Moses said, okay, everybody get away from them. And everybody got away from them. And the ground opened up and swallowed them. What does that mean? Most likely that they weren't willing to repent. And God knew that that was what it was going to take for them, for the people to see that they needed to repent. Some people, God just speaks a word and they repent. Some people they go through hard times and they repent. Pharaoh went through very hard time and lost everything. He really lost everything. Okay, Pharaoh, during the 10 plagues, lost his economy, was totally de decimated. His, he lost the, uh, the firstborn children of everybody. There was the plagues that killed many of them with the diseases. When he chased Israel out of the Promised Land and chased them into the Red Sea, he lost his army. And history tells us there was a dynasty change after that. He had no army. He was weak. And he was conquered. You know, what did he lose because of his stubbornness to, to answer God? Everything. There are people who lose everything because of their disobedience to God. And you know, it will even be true for a Christian. If a Christian will refuse to repent of their sin, God will put them through hard times. And if they still refuse to repent... He'll take them home early because they're ruining their, the testimony of God before the people. And I think I know Christians who have died early on because they just would not repent from their sins. And I know that there are people who've been judged because of their sin. And I've shared this. I know a man who attacked a pastor viciously and watched his whole family pay the price of his sin because he would not repent when the 
head deacon and I went and talked to him and said, you can't do this. This pastor doesn't deserve that. And he said, I'm going to, he, I don't like him. I'm going to keep doing this. And he ended up losing everything. And we know we got to be careful with this. God brings judgment upon people if they will not repent. The main word is respect. God, respect others. Respect the pastor. Respect the leaders. And respect. Well, God calls us to respect leaders. He calls us to honor the, the, the leaders. And his big thing is you honor the position even if you can't honor the person. In the military, there, there's a statement, you honor, you, you honor the uniform. You salute the uniform, not necessarily the person in the uniform. You honor the office. The office. You know, that person has a position of authority. You, even if you don't like the person, you honor but you know, the, still the catch to all of this is that God is the defender. Going back to Moses, Miriam rebe rebelled, and Aaron rebelled against Moses, and Miriam was struck with leprosy. And the only reason she didn't stay leprous, leprous is because Moses prayed for her. Okay? We see David given the chance to kill Saul on at least two occasions that we're told. And he says, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. God, yes, God's anointed me. I'm, I'm, I'm the next future king, but until God takes the previous king out, I'm not touching him. And David probably had the right to do so, but he says, I'm not going to. You know, and we see this all through the scriptures. Honoring position. Jesus honored John the Baptist. Okay? Jesus honored Mary and Joseph and submitted himself to their authority while he was a child. He's 12 years old, technically adult by Jewish law, and yet he went back with Mary and Joseph, and it says he submitted himself to them, abound under their authority for a few more years. Yeah. And most of us would have said, Jesus? You know, he had the right to do what he wanted. He's God. And you know what? No one said, yes, he did have the right to do what he wanted. But he wanted to be the example of you honor that position. And, you know, we need to be able to do that. Honor one another. Love one another. Build one another up. It is so much fun to build people up, especially if they don't deserve it. To tell them that you love them. We shared this Sunday. The greatest thing that we can tell people is God loves you. And the next thing is, I love you. Because you are God's creation and he's made you special. We should love one another in, in, in the body of Christ. And it's so important because God says he disciplines with equity or justice. And then he says, he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth or the word of God. And in the breadth of his lips shall he slay the wicked. In Revelation, it talks about him coming back at the end of the tribulation period. And what does it say? He's on the horse and the sword is coming out of his mouth, striking the wicked and destroying the people. You know, the world is gathered. Satan's going to gather the world to fight against the Lamb of God. It is going to be probably the quickest war that has ever happened in this world as the enemy is struck dead with just the word of God. And all of a sudden, they're dead. Very quick war. And he's going to rule. He's going to rule the word coming out. And he will slay the wicked. And then we look at this. And the right... and Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. I just love this picture. Righteousness. He will be the righteous king. 
Okay? He is the righteous king now, but he will be seen as the righteous king during the millennial kingdom. And then we see a picture of the millennial kingdom. In verse 6, the wolf shall lay down with the lamb, the leopard shall lay down with the kid, and the calf with the young lion, and the fat lean together, and the little child shall lead them. Picture this. The wolf lying down with the lamb. Lambs right now are the, are the prey of the wolf. The, the, the baby goat will lie down with the leopard, and the leopard doesn't usually lie down with, with these things. That's their, that's their food. The fatling the, and the calf will lie down with the lamb. And then I love this, and the child shall lead them. The little child's going to lead all the herd animals, which is not uncommon, but all these, what we look at as predators. And it says the child is going to lead them. I can't even imagine what the, what the millennial kingdom is going to be. It's going to be close to a return to Eden. Okay, animals, the hurt, these wild animals that hunt are going to go back to what God made them in the first place, eating grass, eating whatever else, fruit, vegetables, and not eating one another, not attacking people, back to what God created. No violence. No violence of that type at all. You know, verse 11, and the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp upon the nest of the very poisonous snake. Okay, an asp is a very poisonous snake, strikes you, and you're dead pretty quick. And it says, the child, the, the young suckling child, the one that's still crawling around, <laughs> will play on that hole and be safe. All right? And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. And the cockatri cockatrice is a, actually a mythological creature, but it's an animal that is deadly poisonous. And so there was probably a creature that was a cockatrice, but a deadly poisonous animal. Let's suffice it at that, okay? Uh, and they'll get to play right there. They'll get to play with it, okay? You know, that would be like going in and just, you know, playing with the cobra. Oh, nice little cobra, let me pet you and, you know, let me hold you and pick you up because you think about the weaned child is not careful about what they pick up and what they play with. And basically he's saying they're going to be able to play with deadly, what we, what we would call deadly things and nothing's going to happen. Oh, what the millennial kingdom will be like. We can't even picture this in our mind. We live in a world full of violence and, and problems. We can't even picture. And he's painting this picture. Okay, enemies coming together. The lion is going to eat grass. All right? And just as he did before the fall, just as he did before the flood, okay, we look at this, and it wasn't until after the flood that man and animals had fear upon them. All right? And it said after the flood that the animals, the fear of man will be placed upon the animals. Can you imagine what it must have been like before that? The animals coming up to you just as, your, just as our pets do. Going out in the field and the bear runs up to you. You're not afraid that the bear is going to kill you. He just wants to be scratched behind the ears and have his belly, rub, have his belly rubbed. You know, uh, the, the mountain lion comes up and does the same thing. You know, uh, what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom. These animals are going to be tamed animals again. And it says... They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, Waters cover all sea, otherwise it wouldn't be sea. <laughs> so he says the spirit and the fear of God is going to cover the world. 
What a blessed time it must be to be in the millennial kingdom. God, knowledge, fear of God reigning. The animals being peaceful. Verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people and it shall be and uh, to it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. An ensign is a, a standard. We've talked about that. It's a great big standard in the world. You know, in a battle in that day, the ensign was stand, would be standing up. Usually the king or the general would be by the ensign. If the battle went well and they called retreat, you were to go back to the ensign where the, where the king, was, king was at. You went back to where the king was. And then you might retreat from there. And it says, the rooted offspring of Jesse, King Jesus, will be the ensign. He'll have the ensign where everything will be centered. And it says, the Gentiles shall gather there. You know, it's an amazing thing that the Jews were told that the Gentiles were to be followers of God. All through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they were told, this is how you worship God, and the strangers have the same rules. And yet, the Jews did not let the Gentiles come into the temple or the tabernacle to worship God. Even though God said, I want them there. They're my people as well. You're my chosen people, but I want the rest of the world. Why do I want the rest of the world? I created them, God says. They're mine as well. You're my special people. I've given you the law. I've given you the rules, but I want the Gentiles. This is the mystery that the, the New Testament talks about, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ. Gentiles would come to God. Millennial kingdom, the Gentiles will come to God. Those who make it through the <laughs> tribulation period, which won't be a whole lot of them. But even before that, Jesus came and Gentiles were called to be followers of God, which every one of us in this room are happy that he calls the Gentiles to be his, be his followers. Verse 11, 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the, set, against the second time to recover the remnant of his people which were left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the isles of the sea. In other words, he's collecting them from everywhere. At the time of this writing, Assyria was the big kingdom that was, was, ta uh, was taking over Many of the northern kingdom had been, were living in Assyria and all the places that Assyria moved them to. Uh, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, which is uh, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Elam, from Shinar, which is Babylon. Remember, we've talked about that. The, the, valley, of, the valley of Shinar was where Babylon sits and, and three other major cities. It's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to, to bow down to the to the idol that uh, Nebuchadnezzar built. Shinar is that area called, that we would call Babylon. Uh, and then he says, from all the islands of the seas. In other words, wherever his people are gone, he's going to collect them back to uh, Israel. He's already starting that. He, he's talking about just Jews? Or in this case, it's Jews. Okay, the remnant of his people. All right, these are the Jewish. And even today, Jews are flocking to Jerusalem and Israel. And it's quite amazing because it's almost like God has put this homing pigeon type of, uh, image on there. You talk to a lot of Jews and most of them are like, I want to go. I want to go to, I want to go, I want to live there. 
And it's going to get even stronger as we see more anti-Semitism being developed. Because they're going to go, well, I'm tired of being attacked. I'm tired of being put down. I'm going to go live in the land that I belong in. And that's going to be one of the ways that God calls his people. And we see anti-Semitism rising. It's really bad again in Europe. It's becoming bad in America again. And all around the world, anti-Semitism is very strong. And I think God's allowing it so his people will be driven back to Israel, where God can protect them as a nation. And we're going to see more and more of his people returning back to Israel, where he'll say, okay, here you are. And when Jesus returns, they'll all be right there to see Jesus in a moment and recognize he's our Messiah. Here's the Messiah. Come back for us. And then they'll realize that when he shows them the scars on his hands and his feet, that it was them, that he had come here before. And they'll recognize that he is who he says he is and will worship him. Verse 12, And he shall set upon the ensign for up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's going to set up an ensign. He's going to look, he's going to set up, he's going to call the Jewish people to Jerusalem. He's going to set up an ensign and say, okay, all you Gentiles, here you go. This is yours, come. And he's still calling his people. He's going to make the people one. Do you realize that we as people are one really one blood, as it Romans tells us. We are all related. And we've got to get this idea in our head. Any idea of prejudice toward a different race, nationality, creed, whatever you, however you want to divide it up, is wrong spiritually. We are all of one blood. We all have Noah and Mrs. Noah as descendants. They, we can all trace back to, to Noah and Mrs. Noah, and we all trace back to Adam and Eve. So we know two of our ancient relatives, no matter what, no matter who we are. If you're not a descendant of Noah and Mrs. Noah and Adam and Eve, you're not human. Okay, and I don't know that there's any non-humans in this world. In this world, I'm going to say that there aren't any non-humans. You know, walking on two feet and they're talking. You know, we have all kinds of animal non-humans, but we have no non-humans with the intelligence of people walking around. Okay? There's no half-breed human being-like things because everything reproduces after its own kind. Humans always reproduce humans. Okay? That's what the scriptures tell us in Genesis. Everything reproduces after its own kind. So there aren't, you'll never see a dog give birth to a rat. A rat give birth to a fish. Well, you might be able to genetically engineer it, but in nature's course, you will never see that happen. A human is always going to give birth to a human. Okay? No mixing up of the, of the kinds. So if there's somebody that looks human, they're human. <laughs> okay? Now, if they look like a gorilla or a monkey, they're not human. <laughs> Okay. But if they look human, they may not act human, but they know one thing for sure. They're a descendant of Adam and Eve and Noah and, and Mrs. Noah, and they're, they're related to you. You may have to go back a long ways to get back to the relation, but they're related to you. And this is why it's so important. When we make these distinctions because of race and nationality and all these other things, we're not doing a godly way of life.
And the other thing you want to understand, when the Bible talks about race, it's talking about nationalities. Okay? This, this person was a Canaanite, an Edomite, a Moabite, uh, a Roman, a Greek. That was what they meant by race. What we mean by race in our day, oh, they're black, they're white, they're, they're Middle Eastern, they're Asian. That's what we call race, and that is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about race. It talks about different nationalities. And, you know, we need to be careful about all of this because God says you're all related, you're all one. And we need to be able to lift that up and say, God, you're calling a standard. When, we reign, when he reigns in the millennial kingdom and we reign with him, everybody's going to be one again. They're going to recognize we're all his. Here is our God, our king. It doesn't matter what we look like or what we, what we do or what we say, we're his. Verse, verse 13, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart. The adversary of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Okay. In case you don't remember, Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom. All right. The northern kingdom has lots of names. Ephraim, Samaria, it gets sometimes called Samaria, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called the northern kingdom. Uh, you know, we see all these different things. And the problem is Judah, the southern kingdom, is usually called Judah, but every once in a while they call it Israel, which becomes really confusing because that's supposed to be the name of the northern kingdom. So you really have to kind of read in context when you read Israel. Is it talking about the northern kingdom like normal? Is it talking about the southern? Or is it even talking about Jacob who was renamed Israel? <laughs> okay. This is where we have to read things in context. But here he says, the problems both these nations have together, I'm taking it away. They're not going to have any envy. They're not going to have any strife. They're not going to have any more problems. They're not going to be irritating each other because the Messiah is ruling and he's going to rule the entire nation again. Not only the entire nation, the whole world. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus rules the world. And he will be ruling the world with a benevolent monarchy. Okay? It's not a democracy. People aren't voting Jesus into office. Okay? Um, because somebody would say, no, we don't want him. You know, even though he's the perfect king, he is a monarch. And he's a benevolent monarch, which means he's going to give people what they need. And everybody has always stated, and you look at history, the best government really is a benevolent monarch, where the monarch has full say and yet cares for the people. Now, the problem becomes when you have a monarchy who becomes a benevolent monarchy who says, everything is for me, and treats their people bad and claims everything. And unfortunately, the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is true. When people gain a lot of power, they be usually become corrupt. Jesus will not become corrupt. He already owns everything. He doesn't need any more power. He's not trying to get in to prove himself to anybody. And he's going to be the most generous king there has ever been, giving people what they need and, and, and what is necessary for them. It'll be a wonderful time. And you know, the strange thing is at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, Satan is released at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, and he raises an army of human beings to attack Jesus. After he's taken care of them, given them everything they want for a thousand years, treated them well, you know, kept them from sinning, <laughs> just a small thing. And Satan is going to find people who just want to rebel. 
because their heart is still going to be a heart full of sin. And unless they turn to God during that millennial kingdom and really turn to him, their heart is going to be one that says, I just want to do evil. And when Satan gives them the opportunity, they'll rebel. And they'll be very quickly destroyed. And God will go into the destruction of this world, the white throne judgment. All those who have rejected Jesus Christ will go into the lake of fire, including death and hell. And all the angels who the lake of fire was created for. And God will recreate this world with his servants, us, his followers, to rule in a new heaven and new earth. What all that means, I don't know. I can't, I can't picture a lion laying down with a lamb and eating grass and all this stuff. I can't even picture myself what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like. We have pictures, but you know, every picture we have is tainted by our sin nature. You know, God, I want to be, I want to be a ruler. Why do I want to I just want to rule over everybody. Nope, that's not what God's, God says. My, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you're going to be the servant. You want to be taken care of. <laughs> you want to be taken care of. You want to be taken care of by that servant who's ruling. <laughs> no, that didn't come out. I don't want to be waited on. <laughs> verse 14, they shall flee, uh, fly upon the shoulders of the Philistine toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall t shake the, his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and shall make it men go over dry shod and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people that which shall be left from Assyria like as it was in Israel in the day when it came up out of the land of Egypt he says I'm going to conquer everything and these rivers that might block the block the way I'm going to dry them up people going to Egypt uh, to, to Jerusalem to worship are going to have no problems just as they'd crossed the Red Sea, you know, he's going to dry up rivers. He's going to make sure, because you don't need a river. You don't need the river. When Jesus steps on Mount Olive, it splits in half, and a new river runs and refreshes the Dead Sea and makes it alive and runs the water backwards to, to the uh, Sea of Galilee, and, and people are going to be restored. What a blessing that will be. He will bring health to people. You know, it tells us in another scripture that if somebody lives to be only be 300, they'll die as a child. The millennial kingdom is going to be an interesting time. People living, maybe to the thousand years and stuff that we saw before that. Most everybody who lives in the millennial kingdom is going to live until the opportunity to rebel against God. There's going to be children born that don't know God and have to make a choice for him. We're going to have living and living and dying apparently because it says if somebody dies at 300 they're going to be considered a child so some some death will happen there in this period for whatever reason and we don't know what the reasons will be but he says it's going to be close to close to eden you know we still have the sin nature reigning we still have all kinds of different problems but he's going to reign and things are going to be as close to perfect as imperfect man can be and then when we get the new heaven and new earth everything will be perfect I can't imagine what a perfect world is going to be like. I can't imagine what. I'm looking forward to the day when I learn something and don't forget it. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've discussed how many times did God in the Bible keep repeating himself because why? He knows that we forget. 66 books of it. <laughs> Repeated. Yeah. <laughs> but he keeps saying the same thing over and over again. 
And he keeps repeating himself. Sometimes in the same book, keeps repeating himself. Same chapter. Why? Because he knows that we are really dense, thick-headed individuals who forget. I, I am looking forward to the day when I learn something and I don't forget it. And God can say, here, I want you to learn this. All right, God, I've got it. 28 zillion years from now, I'm going to remember what you taught me today. I'm not going to forget. I'm looking forward to that day when we don't forget. And we go, God, thank you. And we get more and more understanding of his grace. More and more understanding of his mercy. We don't really understand how infinite God is in this world. Now, somehow we kind of think maybe if I study hard enough, I'm going to learn what there is to know about God. But you know, we're going to learn about God for all of eternity and never learn all there is to know about God. Think about that. And I've said this over and over again. How big do you think God is? How strong do you think God is? You're too small. I don't care how big you think he is, you're too small. No matter how smart you think God is, you're not, you're not big enough. No matter how omnipresent you think he is, you're not, you're not there. How powerful you think he is, you're not there. Because in our finite mind, we cannot grasp how big, strong, powerful, omnipresent God is. All-knowing. Because we can't comprehend a God that is so infinitely more than us. Or the whole universe. Well, that's just what I'm saying. Even if you have a God that's big enough to encompass the whole universe, or as I am, he's big enough to come encompass all the universes that might be out there. How omnipresent is he? He, complete, he fills all the dimensions out there, however many there are. We don't even know how big it is for him to fill. Yeah, but we're, we've got physics telling us that there are multiple universes pushing against each other. I have no problem with it. God covers those too. Okay? He covers all the dimensions, however many there are. We only know of definitive, definitively of four. Okay? Because we operate in three dimensions and we can go forward in the fourth of time. God fills time. He goes backwards, forwards. He completely fills time. And whatever's beyond those dimensions, he fills those. How big is your God? How strong is your God? No matter how big you think he is, how strong you think he is, you're still way too small. In heaven, as we're learning about him for eternity, he will always be too small in our thinking. And that's when we get to see him. And he'll still be, will still be too small in our understanding of him because he is going to always be greater than his creation. Now, there's a lot of people who teach, when we get to heaven, we're going to know all things. I do not believe that. I believe we're going to spend eternity learning whatever God wants us to learn. We can't know all things because we're not God. That's just it. If we learned everything, we would become God. We will never be God. We will always be learning. We will always be learning more about him. We will learn more about his grace and his mercy, even in heaven. We will learn more about his love. When we, we won't forget, forget it. And we won't forget. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us to understand that you are so much bigger than we even comprehend. Lord, help us to just humble ourselves before you 
live in the things that you want us to live in and go forward in your love and grace. Lord, if anybody li listens to this that don't know you, that we ask today that they'll recognize that they're a sinner. Accept you as a sacrifice for their sin and make you their Lord and Savior and that they will share that with some Christian that they know. In Jesus' name, amen.